Well, good afternoon for a second day in a row. Here we are on the weekly Sabbath, not an annual Sabbath, but it was certainly nice last night to take a, we sat over here and talked till about 6.30, I think, and then I went home and took a nap and woke up and fed the cat and went to bed. <laughs> and stayed until the sun was well up this morning. I was had been tired, so it felt good to have two Sabbaths in a row. Anyway, the uh, saga is not over. Beginning at sundown tonight, we have the fast of the seventh month. Uh, I explained yesterday more, yesterday afternoon a little bit about why uh, Gedaliah, the one who had been left in charge of Judah, uh, had been killed, and God saw fit to include that as one of the fasts there in Zechariah. Not just a Jewish thing, but God put it in the Bible uh, and spoke as if we had been doing it all these years, and the church had missed that somehow. And we started doing it, I don't know when, 12, 15 years ago, I guess, something like that. I'm just guessing. I don't remember for sure. Uh, realizing that it was biblical, and since it's in the book, that's what we do. doesn't matter about the Jews, doesn't matter about any other churches, it's simply what God put in there, and we're to live by every word of God. So, he proclaimed that tomorrow is a fast day. And I added some, showing that here in the end time, uh, there are some leaders that are going to die or be killed in office from Hosea and Isaiah 7 and other places, uh, and maybe even within the church. So, uh, it's important that God would not have included it, put it that way. We'll see how it plays out and is fulfilled completely before this is all said and done. So, sundown tonight until sundown tomorrow is the past of the seventh month. Then we have atonement coming up, another fast. It's unfortunate they killed Gedaliah when they did, but that's when it happened. <laughs> so you observe when it happens, not uh, wait a month and more comfortable, you know. No, we just go by what the book says, and that's the end of it. Now, yesterday, I got into... Feast of Trumpets things, and went to Hebrews right after Leviticus 23, showing in chapter 11 <clears throat> the faithfulness, the trust, the belief of a lot of people from the Old Testament that Paul recited to the Hebrew church and to all converted Jews for that matter, and since we're part of the church today, uh, we are uh, spiritual Jews. doesn't matter our background, but spiritual Jews, not physical. And he wrote it to the spiritual Jews there, even though many of them may have been by blood Hebrews. Uh, they were by spirit Hebrews, and that's all that really mattered. And he delivered this message to them. I think we'll see for a very, very important reason. 
And I think that became obvious yesterday as we got into Hebrews. I had some other places I wanted to go about uh, the first resurrection and the last trump and so on, but we had music about all that, and I referred to it to some degree. But will he find faith when he returns? And Paul devoted this whole chapter to recounting people who had faith and believed God and did some extraordinary things that normally a human being would not be asked to do, but these were, and they showed their belief, their trust, and faith in God by acting on what he told them to do. And that was accounted for righteousness. As we're going to see today, some of them were truly notable. Some were, like Abraham and Moses and, and so on, as we read yesterday, Noah. But some were not. And I find that very interesting. But there was a story with each one of them uh, which set them apart from the average person on dwelling on the earth. So we saw some of the reasons that God counted them faithful. With Abel, he did exactly what God told him to do. He didn't vary from it. Cain was not willing to do what God told him to do. And it seemed like a simple thing in a way, carrots or sheep, but Cain thought his was just as good. And a lot of people have had that attitude throughout man's history that what I'm doing or what I'm thinking is just as good, maybe even better uh, than what you're thinking. And Cain had that attitude, and it wasn't counted for righteousness. He wound up going through an awful lot of grief as a result of having an attitude that was not willing to be completely quite, uh, compliant with God. Now, we went over this, but I'm hitting the highlights here a little bit at the beginning. Enoch was removed from where he was to a safe place, not heaven, uh, because he was trusting in God in a land that was so violent that he would have been killed had he stayed where he was. So God said, you're faithful to me, I'll take care of you. Now, that translates to today, when we're at the end of the age, and God talks to all seven of the church eras or groups there in Revelation 2 and 3, and the only one that he says he is going to protect through the tribulation physically is the Philadelphia era. And I submit that that has not yet appeared. Uh, worldwide showed up and died, Laodicea showed up and got spewed out, all of us. Uh, but the remains of those, a few names from Sardis worldwide, and a few names from, uh, more names from Laodicea who repent, will form the church that God protects through the coming Holocaust. So, it's a removal to a certain area. We know it's Zion from many, many scriptures, and now we know where the true Zion is. And we have come out and done what God said, leaving the cities of Babylon, the midst of Babylon, and come out into the wilderness, 
here to be delivered, but not yet in that sense delivered. We're here as a place for people to see and come to when God calls out and stirs that 10% to come. So you are part of what God is doing here at this end time. And we don't need to be egotistic or vain or think we're something as a result of that. Instead, we need to be very thankful and filled with gratitude that God chose such as us <laughs> to establish a benchmark, to establish a preparatory place. Uh, it's odd. There's nothing wonderful or great about any of us. I don't think any of us go around comparing ourselves to Abraham. Uh, we're just people. But God had to use people. And he often does not use the mighty and the noble and the wise of this world. He says he chooses the weak and the base. Therefore, if we've been chosen to do something for God, we must be among the weak and the base. Live with that. <laughs> but don't stay that way. He chooses the weak and the base and expects them to change and become mighty and noble through His Spirit and His power. Don't ever forget. Get it through your head. God expects you to become mighty and noble. He expects you to share the universe with Him and with His Son as the Bride of Christ forevermore. And... That being the case, Christ is mighty, he is noble, he's nobility, king of kings, and he expects his wife to live up to his nobility. So we can base, we may be as we start, but we need to recognize and focus and have the vision of what we are to become and be working toward that. If you haven't read about what they do with noble children, let's say in the British Empire, when those boys are born to the queen, the king, they are put through absolutely rigorous uh, training. Day and night they get trained toward becoming noble, toward becoming princes, ultimately as adults, and even as kings or queens. That is drummed into them day and night. They have no peace. <laughs> they have no time of their own, so to speak, because they were born of nobility, so it said. I'm not sure about what the British crown is fraudulent in the first place, but uh, that's a whole different subject. But the point I'm making is, they were in rigorous training almost from birth to do the job that was set before them. And from our initiation into the kingdom of God through baptism and the laying on of hands, God expects us to put aside our ego, our vanity, our self, and train 
to be the bride of Christ, to become noble. I hope we grasp that. I hope we live with that every day. And it overrides a lot of our humanness and our weakness and our baseness so that we can become what God intended us to be. And it's to His glory. If He can take that which wasn't anything and make it into something, then that shows the power of His Spirit and His capacity to bring us up as our Father in the way that we should go. Tells us as physical parents to do the same thing with our children. Bring them up in the way that they should go. So Paul is recounting here people who did that. And he protected Enoch physically just as he's promised the Philadelphia church the same thing. And we need a desire to become Philadelphians. Get over being Laodicean, get over being dead Sardis, and become lively stones. He says he wants lively stones in his temple. He is alive, he's the chief cornerstone, and we're to become lively stones. Not dead heads, not just sitting here like a concrete block, but lively, moving forward, generating energy and spirit and power toward becoming like God is. That's what he expects of us. And there's a reward for that. Being taken and preserved and protected through the tribulation for three and a half years. No, it's not because we're good that he does that. He chose us and he expects us to live up to his name, but he isn't protecting us because we're better than anyone else on earth, because we're not. The main reason he's protecting is to show the world that he is God, and that out of what Satan is doing and what mankind is doing now to destroy all life on the planet, that's what Satan wants, his ultimate goal, and now some of these physical leaders are beginning to say that. The head of Apple, top guy, CEO or whatever his title is, Apple computers, Apple phones, you know those? He just said that all life on earth has to be destroyed. Direct quote. Not just man, but trees, insects, birds, fish, everything has to be destroyed for the good of the planet. Now, where did he get that attitude? That's Satan's whole approach. And now, the very goals and purposes of Satan are coming out through the voices of men. I'm glad I don't have an Apple telephone. If I had one, I guess I'd go ahead and use it, but I sure am not going to go buy one. Uh, I'm not going to drink a Bud Light either, because they're promoting transgenderism. And they're going down the, into poverty as a result of it. People have just quit drinking it. Not everybody, but a lot. So we're nothing special, but God is making something special of us. And we are to be there as lights to the world of someone who obeys God 
and the desert around them blooms as a goat head, as a rose. There's going to have to be quite a bit of change. We can get water now, and it doesn't produce roses out here, does it? Produces foxtails and tumbleweeds and goat heads. So God's going to change the seed. He's going to change everything to become hospitable to man as the Garden of Eden, Isaiah 55. It's what He's going to do. To show the world that He is God. And that if little people like us will obey Him and serve Him, they will come under His protection, they will come under His blessing, and they will be made eternal gods to rule the universe. That's why He's calling us, to be an example and a light to the world. Didn't Christ make that point in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, He did. You're to be lights to the world. Noah, as we saw yesterday, was moved with fear when God told him. And I said, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Direct quote from Scripture. So, Noah believed enough to spend a hundred years building a boat. How long would we last building a boat? I don't know. Of course, people lived hundreds of years then, and he's about 600, I think, when he started it, or he's 600 when it was finished, I guess it was. And then he spent a lot of time here on Abraham, which is notable. These other people were very faithful to God, but Abraham is listed as the father of the faithful. And let's recount quickly without going into each one of these a great deal some of the things he went through. Uh, Noah went through building a boat. And Enoch, through righteousness, it isn't given much detail. Uh, Abel, through a sacrifice, if nothing more. But Abraham went through just getting up and leaving his father's house and everything he had, his inheritance, and going to seek a country and a city that he didn't know what was or where was. That is remarkable to me. And dare I say, I think I did yesterday some, you have responded to a scripture and have left your homes and left your relatives and come out here to live in a goat-head place, a wilderness, a dry area, which will be this way for a time, and then God is going to dress it up and make something special and beautiful of it. He could have taken us to one of the more beautiful places on earth. You know, we could, we could be sitting on a beach in Hawaii today having a nice sermon under the palm trees. We could have been in some beautiful places God has made, but that's not where He took us. He took us out here to a foreboding area in some respects to His glory, that He might transform it into a beautiful spot. But He wanted us to go here before it was beautiful, so that we could simply do what He said and believe what His Word said and simply 
follow his instructions. You know what level that puts you on? We'll get into that more as we go. Not knowing where he was going. Wound up in the land of promise, and so did you. Nobody knows that much but you. And then we went through the account of a 70, maybe 5-year-old woman and a 90-year-old man being regenerated, restored, and having a son. Not seeing where it could come from or how. How many 75-year-old women today would want a child in the first place? I don't think there'd be very many would say, I want to. But she'd never had a child. And she'd always wanted one. And God promised. And then she believed him. And he fixed her. I don't mean fixed in the sense of today. He fixed what was wrong and made everything work. And the same with Abraham. Once God restored the both of them, they had the child against all science, if you will. God had the power to do that. And once he restored Abraham, it wasn't just for one conception. Sarah lived on, died, and then Abraham looked around and found himself a woman about a hundred years younger than him and had a whole bunch of kids. I mean a batch. And he was about 120 then, and she had to be young enough to have that long string of kids, Keturah. So there was quite an age gap there. But it worked, which is unusual. Sometimes 10, 15, 20, 30 years, 40 years age gap is hard to bridge in our lives today. You go through 20 or 30 years and you grew up in a whole different world these days. Totally different music from what was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Totally different culture. It just keeps changing so fast these days that you don't have much in common. Back then, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, nothing much changed. Still rode a horse. The music was still about the same. Uh, now, in this fast-paced world, it's weird. It's just weird what, has, what is going on and going on so fast. But that was quite a test, you know. If God comes to you and says, okay, I know this is way in the past and you can't do it, but I'll do it for you. They believed him. Now let's fast forward here. He's told us there's a time of restoral, of restitution coming. He says, the lame will walk. Jocelyn's going to walk. Nelson's going to walk. I've got a bad foot that's been bothering me off and on. I'm going to walk. No! He says, we'll run like deer. I don't see that as I look around here. I, I just don't see it. You know what? I believe it. The deaf will hear. Blind will see. He's going to restore. 
And I think we've come to understand the last day of unleavened bread is a type of that restoral that is to come that Acts 3 speaks of. And that all those chapters in Isaiah and some in Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of. How much do you believe it? Look at your body. You going to be running laps around here? God says so. He told Sarah and Abraham, yep, going to happen. They believed it. I asked you at the beginning yesterday of the sermon, how much do you believe these things? I was speaking of the resurrection of the dead primarily, and wasn't Abraham and I and uh, Sarah kind of a resurrection of the dead? Said Abraham was as good as dead, nothing there. And then there was. We look at ourselves. God makes us the same promises, only more so. Only more so. When you read all of Isaiah, it becomes obvious he's going to restore an awful lot more than he did there with Abraham and Sarah. And they were the father and the mother of the faithful. And he tells us in Isaiah, look to your forebears, Abraham and Sarah. All right, that's what I'm doing today. We're looking to them. We're looking to them to see what God did with them and what he's going to do with us. That's what he's telling us there. When you look to them, you're seeing what he's going to do for you. You're not just studying history. You're studying prophecy. Now, do you believe it? You're going to chuckle? You're going to say, yeah, all right. But no, it's, it's in here. This is the Word of God. If you prove that, and it's in here, it's going to happen. We look at ourselves and we're pretty pitiful, pretty pathetic. Really? But he says he's going to do it so those who will obey him and believe him. And I don't see many around who are willing to believe him. If I were to preach those things in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to most of the church who supposedly believe in God, they'd think, man, are you ever cracked? But it's in the Word. And it's in very simple, plain language. Isaiah wrote very simply. Not like Paul. Wrote very simply. And just said it the way it is. This is important that we get this. Because all these things are about us. He says they were written for those who are at the end of the age who would need these examples to believe what God says is going to happen in the end time. They're written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And I think we're all very aware that the end of the ages is here. Our country is falling apart before our very eyes and our enemies are gathering before our very eyes. And we're going to be destroyed very soon now. 
and only a few are going to protect it out of it. Maybe only about 7,000. God says 10% of those who were called into His truth, 90% are not going to believe. 90% are not going to follow through. 90% will not respond. 10% will. That's not very good odds, is it? One out of ten? Somebody lines ten of us up somewhere, any ten people anywhere, and says, all right, we're going to shoot nine out of ten of you, and you're standing there as one of the ten. How do you feel? <laughs> do you feel secure? knowing they're going to pull the trigger shortly and only one is going to be standing. That's what we're facing as members of the church. One out of ten will respond in faith and obedience and arise and go to build the temple of God. One out of ten. I want to be one of them. If I'm standing there in that lineup, I want to be the one that lives, not one of the nine that die. Now, maybe that's selfish in one sense. Let him live. I don't have to love him anymore than I do me, do I? No, just the same. But i got to love God. And if I love God above everything, he says I can be one of the ten that lives. Doesn't go into the tribulation and get martyred. I'll go for that. I'll go for that. He said we have to return to our fathers at the end time. And I've defined that as on three levels because I see three levels of fatherhood. The first father we have to turn to is God, the Father. He says, you turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Well, we're the children of God, and we have to have our heart turned to our Father in heaven. There's another level. And Isaiah tells us to turn to our fathers, the prophets. And Zechariah 1 says, don't be as your fathers were who would not turn to the prophets. So we have to turn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and these others in Hebrews 11, in order to obey and serve God, and use their examples to pattern our lives after the good parts of their lives. So that's the second level. And then the third is turn the hearts of the fathers to the children on a physical level with our children today. I think when most people read that in Malachi, they only think of the one level. That is, of physical parents to their physical children. I think that's all I ever thought of over the years when that would be read. I just think of, well, I've got to turn to my kids and my kids got to turn to me. And it was once we got into all these prophecies that I began to understand there's different levels of father and children. And all of them have to be addressed. The Father in heaven first. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob next. And then our children.
And it goes on here. Uh, not only did they have to wait all those years for Isaac, and they had to believe that he would be born, and then they had to do the works when God restored their bodies for it to happen. And then after Isaac got up so big, God said, Saddle your ass, Abraham. I want you to go out in the wilderness and sacrifice your son Isaac to me. You read the story back there. Abraham didn't say a word. He said, Isaac, uh, God wants us to go out and do a sacrifice to him. Didn't tell him who the sacrifice would be, apparently. Just said a sacrifice to God. And he saddled up and took Isaac with him and a knife. And he got Isaac out and made an altar and made places to tie Isaac up. And Abraham was going to actually, literally, run that knife into Isaac's heart. He raised his arm so to do. His own son, his only son, the promised one. And as he raised the knife, God said, "Uh, Wait a second, Abraham. There's a ram with his horns caught over in the bush. Why don't you do that instead? Wow. But he believed God, and he was willing. A lot of thoughts had to go through his mind, did they not? You gave me this son. You told me I would be as the sands of the sea. I'd be millions of people. And now you want me to kill him. What are you going to do next? Give me another one? He took all this into account, went through his head, and more, I'm sure. What kind of conflicting emotions and thoughts would you have at that moment? But he said, all right, God said it, I'll do it. Now we begin to see why he's called the father of the faithful. But he had an idea in his mind. He had an inkling. He said in verse 19, Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him as a figure or a type. God the Father gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice, and he went through it. He literally did it sent his son here to live and to die, and it happened. And he was run through with nails and a sword, and he died spilling his blood for you and me. So God did this as an example of what Christ would become. Now, all those thoughts, as I said, went through Abraham's head And the last one, I guess, that went through his head is, well, maybe God can raise him up. Maybe he can resurrect him once I do what God told me to do. He believed that much. Now, he had a basis for belief, did he not? He was as good as dead. 
in his body. Sarah was as good as dead in her body to the womb. It was all dried up and forgotten. And he was all dried up and forgotten. Understand that. They didn't have blue pills back then. God brought them back from the dead. So Abraham said, well, he did it with me and Sarah. I guess he can do it with Isaac because he said through Isaac. He finally made the connection. Well, okay, I'll kill him. You fix him. <laughs> but God had a little different idea in mind. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, we know the story there about Jacob deceiving and so on and obtaining the birthright really illegally. But God intended that and he would have gotten it to Jacob one way or another without the chicanery of Jacob and his mother. And Jacob received all the blessings that Esau was to have why? Because he looked upon a bowl of soup when he was hungry as more important than his birthright. That's not showing a whole lot of respect to God or to his father. And Abraham was a wealthy man. Isaac was a wealthy man. was going to become that. And Jacob, I mean, Esau despised it. And he went through hell on earth the rest of his life, and his descendants still hate us. It's Jacob. Still hate us. Obadiah shows they're going to be involved greatly in our destruction. This country, very shortly. They're in positions of power in the banks and so on, and they are just licking their lips to destroy this country. And they're going to get her done. And then they're going to laugh and dance and sing and drink and enjoy it for a little while. And then God is going to take care of them. So with Jacob and Esau, one wound up obeying and believing God and believed in and really wanted that birthright. He wanted it so bad he was willing to do anything to get it. Do we miss that point? What he did was not right, but it showed that he wanted that that had been promised of God through his father so badly he would go to no lengths or any length to obtain it. And Esau, yeah, give me a bowl of soup, you can have it. Didn't care. Do we care like Jacob did? Or do we care like Esau did? Do we believe God and are willing to do whatever is necessary? By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Jacob had served and obeyed God, believed God, was in the line from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
in a righteous line of people who believed God. Now, Ishmael didn't believe God. Esau didn't believe God. That side of the family went their way. And inside you is a war that goes on every day to go Ishmael and Esau's way rather than Joseph and Jacob's way. Paul said he found a war within himself to follow human nature and his desires and dictates rather than God's. Paul doesn't mention Christ here. The whole book is about Christ. But Christ's life was far greater than all of these combined. Realized as a human being while he was here on this earth, he represented all mankind. Every individual that's ever been born or will be, Christ represented. And he never once sinned. Now, all these people we've read about so far have sinned, or did sin. God forgave, and God was willing to forgive because of their belief, their faith in Him, and in the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ. Do you realize He was tempted in all points like as we are? Now, the Jesus I saw walking down in the mural in the Methodist church when I was six, seven, eight years of age didn't look like that. He looked long-haired, weak, effeminate, girly. He didn't look like a man that was tempted at all points like as we are. He had, he had to have had logically speaking, more desire to sin than any of us have ever had. Grasp that. He wasn't just a run-of-the-mill human while he was here. He had the Spirit of God very powerfully, but he had to have been tempted beyond what any one of you or I or anybody out here who's ever lived was tempted why? Because if there was somebody who had a stronger sex drive than Jesus did, he could say, hey, but I was tempted more than you were. I gave in, but I had a bigger problem than you had. So God had to have given him a stronger desire for women than any man has ever had. So that nobody could say, I was tempted more than you were, so forgive me. And he'd have a case. But they weren't tempted more. He was. And never gave in. He was perfect. In every way. And that was only one desire he had. Other people have other desires to sin. He had more of a desire to steal than anyone ever has. 
to lie. But he didn't. Now, you may have had urges to do a lot of things in your life, but you never had the urges in a physical way as great as he had. What a marvelous example he is when you start breaking it down. And that Jesus I saw in the Methodist church was not that way. Wasn't that kind. He was a lot stronger and more powerful and more masculine than that. And he withstood every temptation. What an example. Now, I kind of put that in the middle of this because he is the outstanding example of belief in his Father. And he hung on that stake and died for you and me, never having sinned. Now, there's somebody you can turn to and look to. Above all these, even. Let's drop down to Moses here. Verse 23. When he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a good child, goodly child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They wanted that child to live. And they were willing to risk their lives to hide him in the river, in the bulrushes, so that he could live because... Word had come out that all baby boys were to be killed. And Pharaoh's daughter, a black woman, this was in the land of Ham, saw him and decided to adopt him. Now, Pharaoh had to show a certain amount of compassion and pity and love for his daughter in order to accept what was obviously a a Hebrew child into his own family. I think God must have had something to do with that. You know, your daughter comes bringing this white baby into a black family. Wow. Slave baby at that. You know, sometimes I think when we get into this racism... Black people only remember back as far as the most recent slavery where white people here enslaved them. Well, they were enslaved in Africa by other black people, then sold to the white people, but it doesn't really matter. That's as far back as they go. And I don't think most people in religion understand, at least it doesn't come out in the movies, that the people of Mitzrium were black. It says very clearly in the Scripture they were of Ham. And Ham was black. So Israel was in slavery to black people a long time before this nation was ever established in its modern way. They owe us reparations. (laughs) If you want to put it that way. We were slaves to them a long time. For 430 years. Didn't last that long here. Now, I'm just making a point, and I don't care, and I'm not expecting anything of this. But let's understand what Moses went through as a white boy in a black family and in a black nation. Verse 
By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He decided, I'm white, I'm going to stick to the Jews, the whites, the Israelites. They're my real family. That was obvious. I'm going to make that choice. Well, Pharaoh was wealthy, ruler of the whole land, ruler over all the Israelites. And Moses said, I'm just going to be an Israelite. You know what it took to say that? He expected death, obviously. He had been, by mercy to Pharaoh's daughter, even allowed to exist in the land. And then when he decided to turn on the family that had adopted him, I'm sure the rules of Mitzrayim said, kill him. So he knew what he was up against. Choosing rather to suffer affliction, slavery, with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The pleasures of sin here means that as Pharaoh's adopted son, he's very wealthy, he could have anything he wanted, he could have all the women he wanted, he could have all the horses he wanted, he could have anything he wanted, and he could enjoy it the temporary pleasures of sin, as opposed to making bricks every day all day long. That's quite a comparison. He chose that. And then he happened to kill a black guy and had to run for his life. He defended an Israelite instead of the Egyptian, his adopted family, or Mitzrayimite. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, he feared God more than he feared Pharaoh. So he ran to serve God in the desert instead of facing Pharaoh. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have a certain fear. Physically, I'm sure. Because if you know you killed one of them and they're coming after you, uh, you're going to be killed. So he took that into account and said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to serve God. He put God first. That's what this says. As seeing him who is invisible. Remember at the beginning of this, faith is the substance of things things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So Moses wasn't seeing God visibly, but he believed in him and said, I'm going to serve God instead of staying here and enjoying the things that Pharaoh has to offer me. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. God said, spread that blood over your doorposts. Moses believed it. The Egyptians all lost, every house lost the firstborn of man and beast. And the Israelites who had a little blood of a sheep or a goat on the doorposts were spared. Now, when Moses heard from God what needed to be done, he believed him, 
And then he told Israel and said, you better do this. And they did and were spared. Believing God did some good, didn't it? Later that night, they were able to leave. Then, they were apparently trapped in the mountains by the Red Sea. Mountains came down, there was a valley in the Red Sea in front, and had no place to go. And here comes Pharaoh and all these chariots, and here stands Moses with three million people about to be slaughtered on the beach. But he believed in God. He believed he would be taken care of. He told the people, believe in God. He will save you. <coughs> now that took some doing, didn't it? He said, move forward. What do you mean move forward? The shark's out there. It's over our heads. What do you mean move forward? I'm just a bricklayer. I never learned to swim. I'm going to drown. Believe God. Believe Moses. Move forward. Oh, okay. I certainly can't run backward. Here they come. And then the wind started blowing. And then the water began to part. And then the wind blew some more and it made it dry enough they could just walk through. God has a lot of different ways of taking care of things, doesn't He? All you got to do is believe Him. I injured my legs. I injured my shoulders. I have a baseball elbow. I have a football knee. I have stuff that makes it hard for me to get around. I mean, I'm going to sit here for a little over an hour, and it's going to be hard to get off this chair, even. I'll stiffen up. I know that's coming. You have all kinds of different maladies. God says He's going to make you run like a deer and see and hear. You believe Him? Time of restitution is getting real close. Now's a good time to believe. The Egyptian army is getting real close. Now's a good time to believe. March forward. Move forward. Don't stand still. Don't be a dead stone. Be a lively stone. And on and on it goes throughout the Bible. So they passed through the Red Sea with great faith and belief. And then they got on the other side and they were thirsty. And all their faith and belief just drained away. And they said, you brought us out here to die. How fickle people are. How can they believe one minute and not believe the next minute? But that's what they did. They exasperated Moses. He didn't get to go to the promised land because he got so frustrated. He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. God still honored it and gave him water because he intended to save him in the long run. Isn't he merciful and compassionate? Cost Moses something, but... He had a temper there. He wasn't perfect either. He was a friend of God, but he wasn't perfect. You and I have a chance. 
we have a chance. We're going to continue to believe. Isn't that what Christ said in Matthew 24? He whose end endures shall be saved. No, he who endures to the end shall be saved. You don't give up. You don't believe one minute and not believe, oh, here come the Germans, here come the Russians, here come the Chinese, here come the Thailanders, here comes Iran. Oh, you brought us out here to die. Why don't you go to Zion? You'll be safe. Oh, okay. I believe that, says one out of ten. The other nine say, <laughs> come on. And they die. Think this wasn't written for us? God's given us promises. We've got to believe in them. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Trumpets and shouts, and the walls just fell down. That's not normal. Did you know that? Town walls don't just sort of fall over. Maybe there's a huge earthquake. Occasionally it might happen. But not on a nice clear day with no earthquake. Just a shout. That doesn't make much energy. But God answered it. And by faith, it happened. They had to do their part. They had to, want, they had to circle the city seven days. God expects us to do our part. But just walking around it didn't make it shake down. They might have had a heavy walk, but it wasn't that heavy. And you know what? A very remarkable thing happened there. There was this prostitute, hooker, who lived in Jericho. And spies had been out to check things out in the promised land, in Jericho. And had those spies been caught, Caleb, Joshua, they would have been killed on the spot. But they got inside the city, and here was this hooker. As they came by her door, she might have been expecting customers to pay. That's the kind of woman she was. That's all she was, a hooker. But those two guys look different than the rest of the guys in the city. And they got talking. It wasn't about price. It was about Israel and the promised land. And she decided that they were of God and took them in and hid them, knowing that if someone found them in her quarters, she would die. And then she left them out the window and told them where to go to get away from those who thought. She told them. They went out there. So they got all their swords and bows and took off after them. And she let them out the window and told them which way to go to save themselves. Wow. 
Why is that so remarkable? Highly unusual, wouldn't you think? But guess what? She believed they were of God on some level. And that one act from her not only caused her to be saved and her family physically when the city fell, and Joshua and Caleb said, don't you touch that hooker. Now that's not normally what a general would say. You can have the hookers and you can have all the women and girls you want. That's what armies do. All of them. American armies included. But he says, you don't touch that woman. Let her live. Now, God honored what she did despite her profession, despite her background, despite everything she had ever done. God is going to have her in his kingdom. Think about that. God included someone like that to be the bride of Christ in the 144,000 because that's what this is talking about. He gives us there not just a ray, but a sunshine full of hope. In other words, no matter who you've been, what you've been on this earth, the lowest of the low, and that's about as low as you can go, you can be saved out of it through the blood of Jesus Christ and be part of the kingdom of God and live forever in glory. That's Rahab's future. You and I sometimes get a little discouraged, a little frustrated, think I'm not going to make it. How could I possibly make it? Why did God call me? Why did God call this little bunch here and only this many are left? You know, we can doubt real easily. Think about Rahab. She's one of our fathers, if you will. Faithful ones to God in a singular act. It was not a lifetime of good works. It was not a lifetime of living God's way. It was a simple belief in her mind that if she helped these people, God would deliver them. And maybe she even thought He would deliver her. I don't know what she thought. But she believed in them enough and in God enough, somehow, that she says, I'm going to do this thing at risk of my life for them and for God. And on that one singular act, her whole life was forgiven, and God said, you're going to be in my kingdom. My mind is made up, I don't know the rest of her history after that. She probably changed professions, lived with Israel, but God accounted that for righteousness. Just that! It made her one of the bride of Christ. 
To go from a mattress back horror to the bride of Christ is quite a gap. You can't have done anything that is unforgivable through the blood of Christ except refuse to repent as did Esau. Anything can be forgiven. I've had to counsel prostitutes in the past. In Miami, especially. Southern California. Don't think I ever did. Well, I did too. Once in Idaho, even. And they have such low self-esteem and such low value in themselves that it's very, very hard to get them to believe that God would forgive them of the life that they've led. Hard to get across. This example is there to give hope to that kind of people. And it's not just women. There have been men, too. Gigolos, prostitutes. I mean, it falls generally on the ladies, but it's been both ways. Queers, homosexuals, they got the same problem. Even that can be forgiven of God. As horrible as it is. Incredible story. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Army went from 32,000 to 300. And all they had to do was light their lamps and yell and God caused the whole army down there to kill themselves. Kill each other. That took some fortitude. Took some belief in God. Well, I see you've reduced me down to 300. Wow. Okay, let's go. Get your lamps, guys. Nah, you don't need swords. Just get your lamp. Did they take swords? I forget the details. Didn't need them. Let's go. There's only a hundred and some, 140,000, whatever it was, Assyrians down there. Let's go get them. That's belief. That's trust in God. Now, normally you'd say, that's a lot of people down there, God. I've only got 32,000. Can you get me some more men? Can you draft some so we can go against these guys and fight them? That would have been his natural thought, would it not? And God said, no. Nah. He says, go down and see which, how they drink. And uh, got it down to 300. And Gideon must have thought, sure glad you're God. What, what else could you think? But he believed and did it. And of Barak, who in the world is that? Paul threw in a couple here that you probably don't even remember the story. One of them is him. Back in Judges 4, I'm going to risk going back here and going overtime. But since we're in this, and Paul mentioned it and said he didn't have time to write it all, then let's look at it. I won't spend a lot of time here, but 
chapter 4 of Judges, the children of Israel were evil in God's sight. That wasn't unusual. But here is another example of it. And there wasn't a man left in Israel who was able to be king or judge in any way. Every man leaned to his own understanding. And the one who people came to for advice and counsel was Deborah. That's a woman. There wasn't a man worth talking to in the whole of Israel, just Deborah. And they had problems. She was the prophetess, verse 4, and judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah, <laughs> had her own palm tree, called it Deborah, I guess. But here was an army that was going to be coming, Jabin's army, verse 7, and his chariots and his multitude, and she had gone to this fellow named Barak and said, I want you to lead an army against this army that's coming to get us. Now, he wasn't a king. He wasn't a judge. He wasn't a priest, necessarily. He was just somebody. In verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. He didn't have the fortitude to say, I'm man enough to go do this. He said, I'm going to hold on to your skirt tails. i got to have a woman go before me if I'm going to do this. He didn't have enough strength and faith and belief as a man to say, okay, this wasn't David <laughs> and Goliath. This was Barak. And he said, okay, I'll grab my sword with one hand and your skirt with the other and let's go. Well, at least he believed in Deborah and he believed enough that he did it. And she said, I will surely go with you, notwithstanding the journey that you take shall not be for your honor. She knew that if she went, since she was the one that was looked to as the leader in Israel, the only one, but it didn't matter who the man was who was supposedly put in charge. They would give her credit instead of him. So she was willing to say, you go do it and the people will credit you as being a savior and it won't come to me. But he said, oh, I can't do that. I got to have you. So he wasn't of great strength and power, was he? Had to lean on a woman. For the Lord shall sell Sisera, the king that was coming against him, into the hand of a woman, and she will get the credit. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Uh, and he went up with 10,000 men, verse 10, and Sisera gathered all his chariots, verse 13, 900 chariots plus foot soldiers, far outnumbered Barak and Deborah. 
So she told him then, in verse 14, uh, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. So she gets there. He's got his 10,000. Here come probably a far greater number than that. And she has to give him a prod and say, Get up and go do this now. So he's still acting, really, off her strength. But God had said he would deliver. So you got this weenie following a woman, and God has promised to deliver. So this is a pretty great deliverance, if you will. God can do an awful lot of things without much, is the point. Verse 15, the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and all of them and killed every man except Sisera. He was the only one that got away. And then his people had an alliance with another tribe, and there was this woman named Jael, and he obviously knew that there was an alliance there, so he knocked on her tent door and said, let me in and take care of me. And if any man comes asking for me, like uh, Rahab was, tell him I'm not here. So J.L. took him in, put him in bed, got him all nice and filled and sleepy. He was tired from running. And then she went out and pulled one of the tent stakes out and came in and put it on his temple and drove it through his head. And that was the end of the army of Sisera right there. Pretty good story. Now, God didn't say that Jael was going to be in his kingdom, maybe so, but said Barak would be. Doesn't use Deborah here even in Hebrews 11, who was the judge of Israel, but some weeny guy that she appointed and gave the strength to to go do what God said. Now, credit Barak to the degree that he says, if you will go with me, I will do it. I need help, but I'll do it. And God credited that much belief into putting him in as part of the bride of Christ. Now, what kind of a story is that? You don't have to be much. Just believe it. And he believes it enough to go do it with some help. Now, we have Jesus the Christ as our help, and we're weenies. So we look to him for the help to go do what he tells us to do, and we'll be rewarded for it. That's why Paul included not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Barak of all people who didn't do a whole lot, but he did some. And he believed enough to go do what he'd been told to do, even though on his own, without a woman, he couldn't get her done. I think that's worth noting here. 
and of Samson. We know that story, and it's pretty obvious. But there again, Samson had great strength that God had given him. He had an Nazarite vow, so his hair was long. And as long as he honored that Nazarite vow, God gave him uncommon strength and power. Very uncommon. But there among the Philistines was this little black girl that was really pretty to him. Philistines were black too. Read the genealogy. The movies show them kind of brownish, but no. The Bible says they were of Ham. Anyway, he liked this girl a lot. And they seduced each other, I guess. But she wasn't really on his side. He was an Israelite. She was a Philistine. They were enemies. But she was willing to use her womanly charms to destroy him. So she wasn't in love with Samson. He may have been with her, or at least highly infatuated, let's say. So she seduced him and tried to get out of him why he had the strength that he had. Because he was an enemy and quite capable of killing a lot of Philistines. So she kept trying, remember? She'd say, what's the source of your strength? And he would give her a lie. So she'd seduce him again. And then she'd say, what's, the subject? what's your strength from? Tell me. I've been good to you. Be good to me. So he'd tell her another lie. <laughs> so she did it again. And this time, he just couldn't help himself. He says, it's my long hair. And she cut it off, and he became a weak sister just like that. And couldn't hurt the Philistines. So this continued on, and she didn't pay any attention after that. And his hair started growing. And then there was this bunch of Philistines in this temple to a different god. I think it was 20,000 of memory serves. Philistines there. And his hair had grown long. And those columns to hold up that big a roof had to have been monsters. And he put his arms on the two of them. They were close together, obviously. And he pulled with all his might and collapsed them and killed, I think it was 20,000 Philistines. Because he believed in God and God gave him the strength and the power to do that. Now, he was fornicating. He was consorting with other people who did not know God. There was a lot in Samson's life that was not good. And it almost did him in. After she cut his hair, she could have also killed him. But somehow, through that, he believed enough in God that God considers him among the most faithful of people. So there's some examples of wonderful, powerful people in this chapter. And there's some examples of some who weren't much. And of Jephthah. What about Jephthah? 
Then he mentions David right after that. Well, we all know David. We know he did wondrous things. Killed Goliath, delivered Israel, uh, had some sins. Solomon came from one of his sins, and God made him king of Israel. But David had a man, was a man after God's own heart, and all you got to do is read the Psalms and see that David believed in God and he trusted in God. So David's an easy one, really, despite any sins he had. What about Jephthah? Let's go back to Judges real quickly here. Judges, uh, what was it, 10 or 14? I forget now. Is it 11? Yeah, there it is. Now let's quickly go through this, but uh, I wrote this down somewhere. Judges 11, Jephthah, that's all I wrote. Anyway, Back here, where was I going to pick this up? Uh, well, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. So he, he wasn't a weenie like Barak. He was a mighty man of valor. Strong character. And he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. So his father was Gilead, but his mother was a harlot. So that made him a little bastard, is what that made him in modern terminology. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust Jephthah and said to him, You shall not inherit in our father's house, because you're a little bastard. So they put him out of the family, got rid of him, kind of like Joseph's brothers. And he fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathering vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. You're an outcast. You're like we are. Uh, you're nothing. We'll stick with you since we're nothing too. Birds of a feather flock together. And then they had trouble with Ammon, the brothers, and the Gileadites. Gileadites. Verse 6, they said to Jephthah, Come and be our captain that we may fight with the children of Ammon. So he was a big, strong guy, a man of valor. And they said, we need a leader here. It doesn't matter who your mother was. We need you. You'd gone from kicked out to desperately needed. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do not you hate me? He expelled me out of my father's house. Why are you come to me now when you're in distress? that we turn again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the children of Ammon. And then the Ammonites went way back in history, 300 years I think it was, and said that they had been wronged and that Israel had taken their land. And then he went through and explained to them that their story was all wrong and they didn't quite get history. But he gave them a chance. Yeah, it's 300 years, verse 26. So Jephthah said, all right, I'll do it. I'll fight for you even though you have thrust me out and treated me like vermin. 
all these years, I'm going to fight for you. And then he made a promise. Verse 30, Jephthah bowed a vow to the Eternal and said, If you shall without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands. He went to God. Okay, that was a good thing. And wanted help from God. Now, he didn't know God that well, so he made an ill-advised vow to God. If you'll deliver the children of Ammon, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, that is a very reckless vow to make. Whatever comes out my door to greet me, that could have been his wife. It could have been the dog. It could have been his daughter. He just made a vow to God. You be with me, and I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out. Oh, boy. So Jephthah passed over to the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, smote them from to death. Verse 34, Jephthah came to Mizpah to his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with trembles, uh, timbrels and dances, <coughs> dancing and singing and music. And she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are one of them that trouble me. Not the Ammonites. This was a bigger trouble than that. He'd kill the Ammonites and came home victorious. Now he had promised God he would kill his only daughter. Made a vow. And there's scriptures that say if you make a vow to God, you better keep it. Baptism was a vow. Better keep it. You're one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth to the eternal, and I cannot go back. And she said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the eternal, do to me according to that which has proceeded out of your mouth, for as much as the Lord has taken vengeance for you of your enemies, even of the children of Ammon. God has fulfilled his promise. Now you have to fulfill your promise and kill me. What a daughter she must have been. What character. What belief. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. She wasn't married, hadn't known a man. She said, I'm going to die in two months. Let me at least have two months of time in the mountains with my friends. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months, she ran off to Greece and never went home again. Not the way it's written. 
She returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man, and it was the custom in Israel, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. He kept his promise to God. He believed in God. What a cost. Abraham did not have to kill Isaac. But this man had vowed a vow that he would kill his only daughter. And he had the character and the strength and the belief to just do it. See why he's listed among the faithful that will be in the kingdom of God? What a story. Paul didn't explain it all, but it's back there for us to read. Now let's go back to Hebrews 11 and finish this late. So David, we already talked about. Samuel believed God, and he was a servant. And when he was called, waked up, God was calling him, but he thought it was uh, Eli. And he said, here am I. Here am I. More than once. He was ready to serve, ready to give. That's something God values very greatly. He says, be of a ready mind. A mind that's ready to serve. A mind that's ready to give. A mind that's willing to put self aside to serve others. Samuel had that quality in his character. And God recognizes him here for that. And of the prophets. He doesn't name all the prophets here, but he names some of the things that they did. It's incredible. What did the prophets do to deserve to be listed among the faithful who will be in the kingdom of God? Let's read it quickly. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, destroyed nations, kingdoms, worked righteousness, which is hard, obtained promises from God, they were faithful. God told them to do something. They went and did it. Isaiah, I want you to run around butt naked. Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your side 430 days, both sides eventually. I want you to do some things that seemed odd and strange. They just did them. What if God came to you, an angel, right now and says, well, I think I want you to strip off here and run around naked for a while. That would require some thought, a great gulp, and it wouldn't be easy, would it? Isaiah just did it. They stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel. God had to intervene, but Daniel said, I'm not going to worship your image, O great king. You can kill me, but I'm not going to bow down and worship you. We have another guy coming along real soon here called the beast, along with the false prophet. And they're going to say, take this mark in your hands or in your forehead, and they're planning it right now, and starting to institute it even, where you can't buy and sell without what they have to offer. That means you starve to death unless God protects you and takes care of you. 
So we got to do what Daniel did. No. O great beast, I'll not accept that. Okay, you can't buy and sell. In fact, I think we may just kill you. One of uh, Hillary's fun camps. But you go to Zion and you're safe. Quench the violence of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll not worship you, O great king. Okay, we'll throw you in the fire. Make it seven times hotter. There they were, walking around in the a big furnace, walking around in there. And a fourth was with them, an angel or Christ. They're with them. And that takes a lot of belief, doesn't it? All you have to do is just bow down and say, I'm crossing my fingers, but you're the great one. No, not going to worship you, O great king. Throw us in the fire. Escape the edge of the sword, many times. Out of weakness were made strong. I said something about that earlier, didn't I? The God expects us to go from the weakened base to become noble and mighty and strong. That's what happened to some of these prophets. I mean... They were just fruit pickers in some cases. But they were made strong in the Lord, like Amos. Out of weakness were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight. David and others. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Gideon and others. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Elijah raised up the widow's child. Elisha raised people up. They actually raised people from the dead. I've seen dead. Dead is dead. People rot. This one tomb people resurrected out of were already bones and were raised up through Elisha. God gave the power. God did it. They didn't, but they were used to do it. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. The first instead of the second or the third. They believed God and did the things they were told to do. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Paul was scourged. Paul was stoned. And he was a modern prophet writing this. But he's referring to those in the past, they were stoned. Some of the prophets were. They were sawn asunder. The, uh, the Jews have the record that Isaiah, who was, in my mind, a very kind, gentle, loving person. The book of Isaiah is written in such kind, poetic ways. Ezekiel was more of a fireball and Jeremiah to a degree, but Isaiah was just... You can see the love and the feeling and the compassion in what Isaiah wrote. And yet God allowed him, according to Jewish tradition, to be strung up by the legs and sawed from the crotch down. Not just the cross, but from the crotch down until he was split in two. 
because he believed and obeyed God. What a story. What are we willing to accept at the hands of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet if put in that position and maintain our integrity and loyalty and faith and belief in God? These people died some pretty horrible deaths. And some will here at the end as well. They will. It says their blood cries out in the book of Revelation, which we're not getting to today. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, hungry, thirsty, having to get away from people because people would kill them because they did what? Preach the Word of God faithfully. And that made people hate them. And this is what happened. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. Find sumptuous palaces, that. Right? Sometimes when you obey God, you suffer. Because you're going to have a great reward as a result of your willingness to do that in belief in the eternal great God of the universe. They were willing to pay that price because they believed that much. Sawing, whichever direction they saw you, is not a pleasant prospect. All these, having obtained a good report, said that right up to the beginning, through faith, received not the promise. They went through all of that, and then they died, or died during that in some cases, and received not the promise. They're not in heaven. No one has gone there except he who came down. Not even David, the hack, tells us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those people, none of them are in heaven. They didn't receive the promises God had given why? I ask you, why? With all that belief and that trust and that faith, God didn't reward them right away. They're dead. They're rotted. They've gone back to dust. Thousands of years. Why would God let them, after all they did, and all the belief and trust and faith they had, why didn't he go ahead and deliver them? You want to know why? And this may be a shocker. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Paul was writing of himself. He was writing of those Hebrew people who had problems and had trouble with belief and faith, obviously, among other things he mentions in this book. They were just human beings who were trying to believe and obey God in spite of themselves and had the weaknesses of Barak, had the weaknesses of Samson, had the weaknesses of 
many others we talked about. And then some of them were mighty and noble and obedient to the point that Abraham and Sarah were, and on and on. And as mighty, and as noble, and as believing, and as trusting, and as faithful as they were, God would not let them receive reward without you and me. These things are written for those upon whom the end of the age shall come. God Himself puts you and me in a category here at the end that is on the level of these people, be it Rahab or be it Abraham. What did Abraham have in common with Rahab? Belief. Faith. Trust in God. That's all they had in common as humans. Totally different lives. Didn't matter. He is going to take those here at the end, by His Word, and put them in the same category, part of the 144,000, to become the bride of Christ. And He didn't let Abraham and David in before you and me. Wow! Where does that put us if we believe and trust in God and obey Him and do as He said and are moved with fear. And no matter what the cost, our sons, our daughters, our own lives, torture, martyrdom, doesn't matter the cost. He's including you and me such as we are. And we're nothing and can do nothing without Him. But with Him we can do anything. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. Glory be to God. Glory be to us. Think of it that way. Glory is going to Abraham, to David, to Jephthah, to Rahab. They're going to be glorified. The Feast of Trumpets. To rise and meet Christ in the air. Mighty, noble, harlots. Because they believed in God. Christ said, believe in me and you shall inherit all things. Obey me and this will happen. Do we believe Jesus? Sounds blasphemous in a way to say glory to us. But that's what God is going to do. He's going to make us God. He's going to put us on the level as the wife of Christ, the wife of God. We are to become God. Glory to God and glory to us. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about.